Hey everyone, welcome to the Trinity Podcast. I'm glad you're listening. This is a podcast for Lynchburg, for Trinity Episcopal Church, and for you, wherever you are. I have some Trinity-specific announcements along the way, but this is mostly about the Psalms, the Bible's prayer book and mixtape. So enjoy this, share this with a friend, and let me know what you think over email at gail at trinityepiscopal1.com. It's almost Lent, or, you know, depending on how much you're thinking about the pandemic, still Lent. One of the two. In the last episode, I told you about my Lenten practices, and I'm still looking forward to hearing what yours are. Spiritual practices for Lent. You know, they're not mandatory, but they're an opportunity to refocus on God. And if you don't need the opportunity, here's a confession. I envy you. One thing Trinity will be doing for Lent is using the Great Litany for the first Sunday, and I'm so amped, it's metal as all get out. Uh, litanies are patterns of prayers with responses. For example, the way uh, Episcopal churches do prayers of the people. That is uh, a litany in a shorter form. So we've really committed. We're going from the 5th century to now with this form of prayer. The Great Litany is one of the oldest prayers we have. It's in the uh, 1544 prayer book, and Thomas Cranmer, the writer and compiler of the Book of Common Prayer, blended this from a few sources. Martin Luther, John Chrysostom, Sarum Processions. Okay, note on Sarum. Uh, you'll run across this word if you're looking up liturgy questions. Sarum means from the Salisbury Cathedral. Uh, it's pretty Roman style. Uh, can be used, but it's fairly ecumenical, so it can be used by Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Anglican churches, and some parts of the Sarum Rite are later used to inform the Anglo-Catholic and Oxford movements. The Episcopal Church. There's always a rabbit hole available to you. As the Book of Common Prayer kept revising, we kept this litany because, gosh, I think we always need it. Use note. It was in the 1549 prayer book to be said or sung. No, no worries about that one from me. On Wednesdays and Fridays before the Liturgy of the Word. Now, you'll, you'll, you'll usually hear it on the first Sunday of Lent. And, like the supplication, a similar prayer you can also find in the book, in times of national distress. Here's why I think we need it. You pray for everybody and everything, and we situate ourselves in a cosmic story. Out of the 40 petitions of this litany, here are my top three. From all evil and wickedness, from sin, from the crafts and assaults of the devil, and from everlasting damnation, good Lord, deliver us. By thine agony and bloody sweat, by thy cross and passion, by thy precious death and burial, by thy glorious resurrection and ascension, and by the coming of the Holy Ghost, good Lord, deliver us. That it may please thee to preserve and provide for all women in childbirth, young children and orphans, the widowed, and all whose homes are broken or torn by strife, we beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. There's some great prayers for mission, too. It's a whole range. You can find it by Googling the Great Litany, and you can pray it with Trinity online or in person on February 21st. 
the first Sunday of Lent at 10.30 in the morning. Let's continue with Psalm 3 and hear it in the New International Version. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Note, most translations or paraphrases include above the psalm this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. After I recover from the nauseating imagery of break the teeth of the wicked, we'll talk about the link between David and the Psalms, the David and Absalom story here, and how we might hear this psalm in our own lives. Psalms and David. 150 Psalms, 73 are referred to as Psalms of David. Here's one reason. In the historical David, the real life of an invented hero by Joel Baden, it's a fun book. Uh, he writes this, the Psalms capture virtually the full range of human emotions, and no character in the Hebrew Bible had as many ups and downs as David. Also, the Psalms are songs, and if you've ever heard a Leonard Cohen song, much less read the Bible, you know that David played and it pleased the Lord. We know that David would play the harp for King Saul, and we hear the power of that in 1 Samuel. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand so that Saul was refreshed and was well and the evil spirit departed from him. Another possible reason. David might have made a liturgy change in the temple. Certain priests, Levites, are to be in charge of his singing. And this maybe indicates that these psalms were already in existence and David formalized the use in worship. So, David and Absalom. Absalom is David's third son, and 2 Samuel uh, chapters 13 through 19 are his show. Here's a very quick summary. Absalom is a loving older brother to his sister Tamar. Tamar is raped by their half-brother, Amnon. Absalom expects their father David to intervene on behalf of his daughter. We read that David is angered and does nothing. Tamar lives safely in Absalom's house. The best resource I've heard for her story is Texts of Terror by Phyllis Treble. Highly recommend it. So Absalom throws a sheep shearing festival for all of his brothers. What a shindig. Amnon's ready to party. Absalom kills him. Absalom flees, his grand, flees to his grandfather's house near the Sea of Galilee. David misses him tremendously. Second Samuel says he mourned his son day after day. David allows him to come back to Jerusalem. Absalom begins to undermine King David's power, gathers an army, and sends messengers saying that when you hear the trumpets, know that Absalom is king. David and some followers flee Jerusalem, and this is when and where the psalm is attributed to David. A few thoughts on that. David is beloved to God. 
the David family crew is never going to be known for Christian family values. And I think this is an assurance that if our family trees have stories of violence and pain, Jesus' family tree is full of it. We are brothers, sisters, siblings in Christ, but family values are less scriptural than our kingdom values. In reading this psalm with Absalom and David in mind, I don't see specific references to that narrative, but I do hear the emotional experience of estrangement. Estrangement in families might be a few people, one person, but the effect of that relationship being severed or earning that severance might feel like many foes, might feel like ten thousands. It might also feel as if you have that many voices telling you to heal the estrangement when they do not know the emotional harm or risk that could do. A personal note here. There's estrangement in my family story. It was a carefully arrived at last-ditch solution. Human brokenness is real. Estrangement and separation from family come up really frequently in pastoral care, too. This comforts me. Christ has already forgiven everyone involved, so we are freed from the impossible task of being Christ. This article has been useful for me as I think about estrangement both personally and pastorally. A Shift in American Family Values is Fueling Estrangement by Joshua Coleman for The Atlantic this January. He's a counselor and treats both parents and children in this theme. He says reasons for estrangement happen along these fault lines. Adult children cite emotional, physical, or sexual abuse in childhood by the parent. Toxic behaviors such as disrespect or hurtfulness. Feeling unsupported and clashes in values. Parents tend to cite divorce, their children's spouse, or what they perceive as their child's entitlement. Here's more about that from Coleman. Estranged parents often tell me that their adult child is rewriting the history of their childhood, accusing them of things they didn't do, or failing to acknowledge the ways in which the parent demonstrated their love and commitment. Adult children frequently say the parent is gaslighting them by not acknowledging the harm they caused or are still causing failure to respect their boundaries, or being unwilling to accept the adult child's requirements for a healthy relationship. He interviews three people who offer really awesome insight about the history of the idea of family. First one, Stephanie Kuntz, the Director of Education and Research for the Council on Contemporary Families. She says this, both sides often fail to recognize how profoundly the rules of family life have changed over the last half century. Never before have family relationships been seen as so interwoven with the search for personal growth, the pursuit of happiness, and the need to confront and overcome psychological obstacles. For most of history, family relationships were based on mutual obligations rather than mutual understanding. He also cites historian Stephen Mintz, who, writes a book, who wrote a book called Huck's Raft, The History of American Childhood. He says this, Families in the past fought over tangible resources, land, inheritance, family property. They still do this, but this is all aggravated and intensified by a mindset that does seem to be distinctive to our time. Our conflicts are often psychological rather than material, and therefore even harder to resolve. Third, he cites a book called The Marriage Go-Round by the 
sociologist Andrew Sherlin, who wrote that starting in the late 19th century, traditional sources of identity, such as class, religion, and community, slowly began to be replaced by an emphasis on personal growth and happiness. By the second half of the 20th century, American families had gone through changes that Sherlin said were unlike anything that previous generations of Americans have ever seen. Coleman summarizes all of this to say, and I think fairly um, generously, neutrally, not derogatory, that estrangement is linked to personal growth is a new concept. So here's a good thing that he sees in families. He says, during the last 50 years, people across the classes have been working harder than ever to be good parents. They give up hobbies, sleep, and time with their friends in hopes of slingshotting their offspring into successful adulthood. On the positive side, this increased investment of time and affection has meant that parents and children are in more consistent and positive contact than prior generations. He continues to say that in the same way, unrealistically high expectations of fulfillment from marriage sometimes increase the risk of divorce. Unrealistically high expectations of families as providers of happiness and meaning might increase the risk of estrangement. I think there's something in there about community as well that we can look to and get fulfillment from Christ not always from community. And we have to realize that we're in a, uh, he's talking about family. I'm going off script here on church family, but we are in a community of mixed expectations. And uh, that's a lot interesting. And I think ultimately hopeful to navigate that um, while Family and community might offer to us disappointment or not fulfill our expectations. The healthiest place for us to put those expectations is in Christ. And in doing so, um, this is the kind of trickle down I believe in. We get that reorders our relationships when we put those expectations in Christ rather than on each other. I think that's ultimately really freeing. Also, he includes this really hopeful note, and I'm hearing big Lent themes of confession, reconciliation, and repentance. He says, because the adult child typically initiates the estrangement, parents are often the ones who must take the first steps towards reconciliation. In my practice and survey I conducted, I have seen that reconciliation, when reconciliations happen, parents often attribute successful reconnection to efforts on their part to make amends, such as taking responsibility for past harms, showing empathy for the adult child's perspective and feelings, expressing willingness to change problematic behaviors, and accepting their child's request for better boundaries around privacy, amount of contact, and time spent with grandchildren. He continues, it's also crucial to avoid discussions about right and wrong, and instead assume there's at least a kernel of truth in the child's perspective, however at odds that might be with the parent's viewpoint. It's sometimes tempting to see family members as one more burden in an already demanding life, he writes. It can be hard to see their awkward attempts to care for us, the confounding nature of their struggles, and the history they carry stumbling into the present. It can be difficult to apologize to those we've hurt and hard to forgive those who have hurt us. I'm hearing lots of grace here and a lot offered back to us through this psalm. 
our children may not overthrow our thrones and send us into the wilderness physically, there's a lot of hurt and emotional pain in families, and we may encounter it. We will encounter it. And our Holy Scripture goes with us and around us in that experience. I also hear Coleman opening up lots of opportunities for hope and understanding through Lenten spiritual practices. He doesn't name, he doesn't name it that way, but I do. You know how preachers are, always looking for that gospel point. The psalm acknowledges our pain and fear and goes deep into God's promises. God is a shield around us. We call God answers. We are sustained by the Lord. The Lord delivers us. Let's end with a prayer from Eugene Peterson, Presbyterian pastor and psalm scholar. In praying with the psalms, a year of daily prayers and reflections on the words of David, he ends the Psalm 3 section with this prayer. O God, I feel the rising menace of sin, degeneracy in society. Disorder lives around me, sickness, death. None of the precautions I take seem adequate. Deliver me from my fears and lift up my head. Amen.